This evening, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14 as we continue our series in Mark's Gospel. Uh, There was a lot to meditate and focus on today, but we look forward to just continuing uh, our study and approach to uh, this Gospel. Um, This is always a a good mark of a church's health by looking at the Sunday evening attendance when there are a few other things going on, uh, especially uh, on TV. Um, uh, so I know this is the AFC and NFC championship game, but, but so far we're doing okay. The real test of a church is in two weeks, right? In two weeks on a Sunday evening, whatever's happening there, um, we'll see, we'll see. But uh, yeah, okay, we won't, we won't talk about that right now. Um, But anyway, so as we look at Mark chapter 14 tonight, um, I want to look at, especially we're going to look at a good section. We're going to go pretty quickly through it, verses 12 through 31. Uh, And that's because I think that what you have in these verses is one section designed to uh, be read together and uh, studied together. And so uh, I'm calling the sermon tonight a tale of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And I trust it will be encouraging and uh, stirring to you as we look through Mark 14, 12 through 31. Uh, this morning, we saw negative and positive examples at the anointing of Jesus. We saw that the scribes and chief priests and Judas had a sinister plot to, uh, to take out Jesus. They are negative examples for us. Uh, but then we saw in between description of the scribes and the priests at the beginning of the text and Judas at the end of the text, we saw the faithfulness uh, of an unnamed woman who was a good example. This woman uh, extravagantly uh, breaks open a vial of perfume that costs her thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars, and pours the entire thing on Jesus' head and feet. I think, of course, Mark gives her this place in the middle of that text as a good example for the readers, as they would see this, of someone who loves Christ sacrificially, willing to sacrifice for him. Uh, This evening, Mark continues to describe events immediately preceding the arrest of Jesus. Uh, In verses 12 through 31, uh, he describes the Lord's Supper, or the Last Supper. I think this text is arranged around the Last Supper, and we will see some more examples of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. In this text, we're going to learn of the commitment of the disciples to Jesus and Jesus' commitment to them. Okay, and that's where we're going to see faithfulness and unfaithfulness in the text. So we'll start our study this evening by looking at the setting of the Last Supper in verses 12 through 16. We'll go quickly through this, then we'll see that uh, example again. The setting of the Last Supper. Look at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Here in the setting of the supper, Mark records the preparations that are made for 
the Last Supper, and we find out that this is during the time of the Passover of the Jews. One of the things I think that's emphasized in just the setting of the story, the Last Supper, is the absolute control of Jesus over the events uh, of these, these moments. So the way the text unfolds, Jesus sends two men into the city to make preparations for it, the supper, and he gives them specific instructions, doesn't he? I mean, you look down the text and he tells them, you know, he doesn't tell them uh, who to talk to, like by naming a name, he doesn't give them a location. He just said, look for a man carrying a jar of water and then follow him. And once inside the room, tell him the teacher needs a room and he'll give it to you. Uh, Again, this is a very interesting situation. Some people believe that maybe Jesus had been there before and worked out something with a man. That could be possible. It could also be possible that he's prophesying or predicting the future here. Where Jesus predicts that this is going to happen, and it does. Uh, We don't know for sure why the disciples appear to be so secretive in the process. They go in. They see the man carrying the water jar. They don't talk to him in public. They follow him into a closed room, and then they ask. Okay? It may be uh, because Jesus didn't want to draw any attention to himself, uh, and the disciples may want a private location where he could spend some time with them, or it may be because he knew that he was already wanted. Maybe he understood the scribes and Pharisees. They really wanted to arrest him and kill him, and so he might be trying to stay low for that reason. Regardless, they find a room, and they make preparations— and, um, and so uh, from there, we see uh, the story itself. And so uh, as we go from the setting, we go into the story where we find one good example surrounded by two bad examples. I think, again, this is another sandwich. You know, bad example, good example, bad example. Okay, the way Mark arranges these events. So... We start with a negative example, and the two negative examples are uh, both in the form of predictions, where Jesus predicts that someone is going to fail. And you, you know some of these events. So uh, first we see the prediction of a disciple's unfaithfulness, verse 17 through 21. Look down there in your Bible, verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it's written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he would not have been born. Okay, so in these verses, Jesus predicts that one of his disciples is going to betray him, although he doesn't come out and tell us in this text the identity of the person. Okay, in some of the parallel accounts, they come right out and say that it's Judas. Now, if you're an alert reader, you would have picked up on this, because earlier in chapter 14, we know Judas was making plans uh, to do this. But even as the text unfolds, he does not come right out and say that it's Judas Iscariot. Um, we don't even know if the disciples ever figure this out, according to Mark, or really any of the Gospels. We don't know if at this point, as they're going around asking, is it I, is it I, is it I, and finally Judas asks the question. We don't know if the disciples ever figure it out. We know, according to the Gospel of John, that Judas figures it out, because when Judas asks in John's Gospel, is it I, Jesus says, uh, you're, the one who's, you're the one who said it. 
and then Judas leaves immediately. In Mark's gospel, we don't have any record of, of Judas finding out or of Judas leaving immediately. He does, though. What Mark does emphasize is that every disciple is sorrowful and inquisitive. They go around the room and they all ask, is it I? And I think the emphasis that Mark places here is on the one disciple who will betray Jesus and his wretched condition and certain future judgment. That's why uh, in this text, uh, down in, in verses 21, Jesus is really harsh with what he says about the one disciple that's going to fail him. He says, For the Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And then it gets even harsher. It would have been better for that man if he were never born. So Jesus is saying here, non-existence is to be preferred to the certain future judgment that this man is going to face. Okay, so at the beginning of this story, we have this failure of an unnamed disciple. Prediction of failure. It's going to be Judas, but prediction of failure. And I think that Mark places it here in the story to magnify the faithfulness that's going to come right after it. The faithfulness uh, that we see starting in verse 22 through 26. Okay, so again, I think after the setting, there are these three examples. There's a prediction of a disciple's unfaithfulness, verses 17 through 21, and then you have Jesus's faithfulness, verses 22 through 26. And so I want to look at these verses. These are verses that we look at about once every month or so when we celebrate the table. We look at them reflected in 1 Corinthians, but, but here we'll look at them in Mark's gospel. Look at verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. So here in the middle of this narrative or story, we have... Uh, Mark describing the actions and the explanations of Jesus about uh, the Last Supper. It appears that Jesus' actions take place during the Passover meal together. Remember, he sent two of them in, get an upper room, they make preparations. They're going to celebrate the Passover together, which is a Jewish feast. But as they celebrate this, Jesus reinterprets some of the elements of the meal in an entirely new way. Remember what Passover was originally to represent and all the events of the Passover and the the lamb and the bread and and everything related to it was to celebrate when Jews came out of Egypt and God's deliverance of them. Now Jesus is going to do some new things with these elements. And you can see his actions by looking for the verb took. Okay, so you see exactly what Jesus does in looking for the verb took. It says, first, he took bread. In the normal Passover celebration, unleavened bread would be enjoyed by all of the Jews as a means of remembering the bread of affliction. If you're studying the Old Testament, they call it the bread of affliction that they had when they came out of Egypt. Remember the story 
After the Passover lamb, Pharaoh says, just go. And so they hurriedly go. They don't have any leaven for their bread. And so for the, at the very beginning, their meals are very simple. There's no leaven. It's just you know, kind of like a pita bread or something as they're going out uh, into the wilderness. And so they were to eat this type of bread in remembrance of that. Jesus, however, relates the bread at the Last Supper to his body which will be broken for the sins of his people, okay? So he's going to relate it to an entirely different covenant, not Moses' covenant, not the old covenant. He's going to relate it to the new covenant, a new covenant that will be sealed by his broken body and his shed blood, okay? So Jesus is taking an event of the Passover, the breaking of the bread that would be around the time of the eating of the meal, and he applies it to his broken body which, which will uh, appear on the cross. Secondly, though, you see the second time the verb took is, is used here. He took a cup, the text says. Now, what's happening here is this is one of the four cups of the Passover celebration. So there were four times in the Passover celebration where they would t- take a cup of wine and drink that collectively together. Okay, and so what Jesus does here is he takes that event that was a symbol in some ways of the Passover, and he applies it in a symbolic way to the blood which he will offer for the sins of the many. The text says, the sins of many. Interestingly, in the first century, I think that they would, this image would be very vivid for them, and they would understand what he's doing here, because uh, I was just reading a Jewish source that considered uh, wine... Uh, to be the blood of a grape plucked from the vine and crushed. And so I don't think this imagery would be lost on the Jewish people. Uh, it would be pretty understandable to them in the first century. This is a graphic imagery of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ is just getting ready to make that will seal a new covenant uh, in God. As we look at this and we consider the the this graphic imagery of Jesus' sacrifice. I don't want us to lose, fact that, lose, lose sight of the fact that this is to be a picture of his faithfulness and his commitment to the disciples. Just as this bread is broken, my body will be broken. Just as this, uh, this, this, this wine, this is wine is a symbol of my, my blood which will be poured out for your sins. This picture is what Jesus is going to face. <clears throat> Men and women, as I was considering this, this this week, this is a terrible, terrible experience that he will face. Later, it's further consideration of this cup, the cup uh, of God's wrath that he will face that stirs Jesus and brings him much sorrow and grief. And this should mean something to us who have studied the Gospel of Mark for The Gospel of Mark has painted a picture of Jesus where, you know, he is authoritative. He is unflappable, right? Okay, so there was a time when a demon-possessed man comes charging at him, and it doesn't do anything to Jesus. There was a time when he was on a boat, and a terrible storm came, and what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping until they wake him up. And then what does he say? Muzzle it. 
peace, be still. Nothing, nothing uh, takes Jesus by surprise. Nothing makes him nervous. There's a time when the disciples came to him and said, we have 5,000 people with no food. No problem. What do you have? Anything? And he performs a miracle. 4,000 people. Yet later on, when he considers the future reality of being under God's wrath and dying on the cross, he experiences great sorrow. Matter of fact, look just at the very next text. Look in Mark 14 and verse 34 to notice how Jesus thinks of this event. Mark 14, 34, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus thought he was going to die from the sorrow he was facing. Look at verse 35. And going a little farther, he fell down. Jesus fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible that the hour might pass for him. Look at the, verse 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. We add to this parallel description in Luke's gospel, Luke 22, that says that was his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground as he considered the cup of God's wrath and pouring out his blood for the sins of many. So we consider Jesus here and what he goes through it. If the unflappable Son of God sweats drops of blood just thinking about what it will be like to bear the weight of the wrath of God upon sins, just imagine how terrible it must have been for him on the cross. So as you think of this in this middle section Sometimes we lose sight of it because we're just so familiar with it. But Jesus pours out his blood. This is a picture, men and women, of faithfulness and of commitment. Of course, it's very important. After these images, which visually demonstrate Jesus' great personal sacrifice, he gives one final note in our text. He explains that this is the last cup of wine that he will drink from until he drinks of it again in the future kingdom. Seems likely to me here that what Jesus is doing is he's giving a promise of a future kingdom that he will experience one day with the disciples. I think this is probably the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Jesus on this earth with Israel and the church also coming back with Jesus. But I want you not to lose sight of the glory of what he's saying here in this. This is, this is like a promise of sorts. And Jesus has been right all along, hasn't he? He said stuff like, okay, you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water, and it happened. He says, and then he'll have an upper room, and they had an upper room. And let's not lose sight of the fact that Jesus predicts three times he's going to die, and then he's going to rise again. And did that happen? Yeah, so in this text, he says, I'm not going to drink of uh, uh, of a cup of wine again until we sit down at a better meal in the future during the kingdom. Okay, so men and women, that's going to happen too. 
After this final word, then they sing a hymn and they leave the upper room and go to the Mount of Olives. And that's where we get to the final part of this Mark and Sandwich, the prediction of Peter's unfaithfulness. Look in your Bibles uh, at verse 27. 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. The final part of the story actually starts with a prediction of the failure of all of the disciples. See, you got Jesus' faithfulness surrounded by unfaithfulness from all of the disciples. Jesus says at the beginning here, verse 27, they're all going to fall away. And so this is one of the most interesting things to me in the text that I picked up this time that maybe I'd never seen before. You know, I always think of Judas's act of betrayal and of Peter's denial. And sometimes I, I forget to consider the other ways, maybe not in blatant ways, that they all end up letting Jesus down in the next few hours. As a matter of fact, I was reading one commentator this week, and he said it this way. He says, Jesus warns the disciples to guard against this ki- kind of sinfulness of which he says, most of us are most guilty. Sins of weakness and irresoluteness rather than sins of intention. Edward says, we, did, we do not plan on sinning, but neither do we hold the fort when we ought. Okay, and so he calls out every one of the rest of the disciples for running when they had no intention of doing so and not standing with him in his last moments. You're all going to fall. And Jesus doesn't just pull that prediction out of thin air. It's not like he's just saying, you know, I I think this is what's going to happen. He actually has scriptural proof for this. And what he does then is he quotes the book of Zechariah. He quotes Zechariah 13, 7. He said, this is going to happen. And the quote that he was thinking of, Zechariah 13, 7, uh, you you see in the text, Uh, in verse 27. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Here's my reason or support. For it is written, quote, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Okay, so in this text in Zechariah, I will strike means that God is going to strike Jesus as the shepherd or allow him to be struck in fulfillment of his divine will. In fact, this verse, this verse in Zechariah, reminds me of another verse in Isaiah 53, a text we are all very familiar with, but verse 10, maybe a verse we're not as familiar with, where God says this, or Isaiah says this, he says, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. This is God's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. The point of this Isaiah text and Zechariah text is that God will strike down his appointed leader and the people will scatter as as a judgment for their sin. 
And so what Mark does with it is he uses it about God being the ultimate agent who will strike Jesus, causing all of the disciples to scatter. Okay? That's the text. So when God does this, you will scatter. Peter responds to the Old Testament, though, with words that are very confident. He says, even if all the others fall away, I will not. So in this moment here, Peter is foolishly self-confident, and he doesn't even understand the nature of his own weakness. I think we can be very critical of Peter, but do you ever find yourself talking this way to God? You say, God, I'm never going to fail you again. I'm not going to do it. I will be strong for you. I will stand in the face of temptation this week. Ever say that to God before? You know what I want to tell you to do about that? Don't say that. Don't say that. Because I think what this text is doing is it's reminding us of the way the gospel works. Okay? That's not, it's not wise for us to be like Peter and say, I'm going to stand for you in the midst of anything that happens, but to admit and understand our frailty as human beings, as followers of Jesus Christ. Okay, so one of the, the most glorious things, I think, of this text and the way it's laid out, you've got failure by Judas, Jesus' faithfulness, and then you've got failure of every one of the disciples, including Peter, is that it's a reminder of the way the gospel works, and it's a reminder of our Christian experience as well. And so later on, Jesus is going to tell these men, watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. So instead of going to God and saying, this week I've got it, I will not fail you, I will stand for you, I'll be strong for you, I will not... I think it'd be better for us to pray that God would protect us from such foolish self-confidence and the miserable failure that it creates in our lives. And so I think this text is good for us, this sandwich. I think it's helpful for us because it reminds us of our own human frailty and also reminds us to rejoice in Christ's commitment to us. This is the gospel and this is Christian experience. My Failure and frailty met by Jesus' faithfulness, right? And so as we consider this week, you know, we can get all uh, fired up about the woman who sacrificially gave. We can get motivated by the failure, the examples of the disciples and everything around them and say, okay, this week I'm going to do better. I think it would be better for us to understand our own frailty and failures and to say, thank the Lord for his faithfulness to us and ask him to help us and to keep us from entering into temptations that will cause us to fail. If every one of the disciples failed, the odds are most of us or all of us would fail in our own strength and power as well. And so I trust that Jesus' faithfulness will inspire you this week to go to him, to thank him for his faithfulness in covering your sins, and to ask him for strength and grace 
Ask him for strength and grace in the midst of temptation. Let's not be foolish. Let's not be self-confident like Peter. But let's ask God for grace and strength. Let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, as we come to this text and we think of uh, another one of these narratives, this narrative being the Last Supper, we consider the great wrath, the cup of wrath that Jesus Christ was anticipating enduring. He vividly portrays it for us here, broken body, shed blood. We want to leave this evening again, again uh, amazed by his commitment to us. He followed through the whole way to the end. He was willing and obedient to not only pour out his blood as a sacrifice for our sins, but to, to take on the wrath of God for sins. Lord, as we consider the gospel again afresh and anew uh, tonight and Jesus' action on our behalf, might we just rejoice that it's according to his faithfulness and his commitment to us that we are accepted by you. And so, Lord, may we also then learn from the examples of uh, Judas and Peter and all the twelve who were self-confident, who said, there'd be no way we would ever deny you. But then later that same day, abandon Christ. May, they see within, may we see within their weakness our weakness and understand that the Christian experience is one of your faithfulness and your ability and your enablement, our frailty, our weakness. I pray then that you would, try, you would help us this week to avoid temptation, strong temptation, Lord, as we leave here, may we not leave in self-confidence with our, our chest puffed out, thinking that this week will go well for us. May we leave here knowing how much we need you. May we watch and pray that we might not enter into temptation. And Lord, would you deliver us, we pray. In Jesus' name and for your glory, amen.